And then they were the ones who had the responsibility of telling the people what the Bible said, what it meant, and everything else. And so they could say anything that they wanted to. And they did do that. And so most of these people were held in darkness, had no idea what the Bible really said. And so now Martin Luther starts coming out there and saying that Joshua lived by faith. And that's totally different than what had always been taught in Greece and everything else. And now people are starting to say, wait a second. What else is in the Bible that I don't know about because I can't read it for myself? And that's where you had men like William Tyndale who started translating the Bible. William Tyndale translated the New Testament into English well before the King James Version came around. Right. It was torture for him. He was burned at the stake for that. Right. In fact, they took his ashes and, and dumped them in the James River. Right? I mean, they, they wanted to desecrate him in any possible way that they could for what he did. But there were strong movements away from Catholicism throughout Europe, and a lot of Protestant denominations were formed during that time. Now, Luther was not officially excommunicated until January 1521 by Pope Leo X. And so, 1517 is the unofficial start of the Protestant Reformation. 1521 would be maybe what you could consider the official start of the Protestant Reformation because the Diet of Bern is how you say it. It looks like a Diet of Bern. It looks like you're eating worms for your food. But diet is basically just like a, a council, and it's, it was in Germany, and so it's pronounced worms, but it looked like worms. But they, they, the Edict of Worms in May of 1521 condemned Martin Luther, officially banned citizens uh, of the Holy Roman Empire from defending or propagating his ideas. So you could either be sympathetic to what he was preaching, let alone defend it, or believe it and then tell other people about it if it became illegal. Then, Johann Gutenberg, uh, Gutenberg invented the printing press, and with this invention of the printing press, it made it possible that as these Bibles were being translated into languages that people could understand, now everybody could actually get their hands on these Bibles, and so they started they started uh, disseminating these Bibles under the nose of the Roman Catholic Church without them knowing about it. Of course, every time they found out, they, they would go in and destroy the presses, they would burn the Bibles, they would get rid of everything that they could get rid of, that didn't keep people from getting it. And once they got it, they started reading it for themselves, and they realized that the Catholic Church was lying to them all along and was teaching them things that were not actually even in the Bible. People's eyes started to be opened, and that's why this thing spread so so uh, so huge. So while the Protestants rejected a lot of the errors of the, of the Roman Catholic Church, they didn't return to the, the pure pattern of the New Testament church. Um, churches were divided into three major categories then at that point. Catholicism, Protestantism, and Baptism. And it was in the 1600s that they actually started to be called Baptists. Now, you don't see that term Baptist necessarily until 1600. It was called something else leading up to that point. And we'll talk about that when we get to the end. But the Protestant Reformation was not us. The Baptist Church was not part of the Protestant Reformation. Mm -hmm. We were never within the Catholic Church. Because remember, I said that, and we'll talk about this, and we're reading some things, that there was always a denomination, if you want to call it that, that was outside of the Catholic Church. That was that was descendants of the true New Testament apostolic churches, the churches that descended from the apostles. There was always that remnant that was there existing outside of the Catholic Church. So the Protestant denominations came from within the Catholic Baptists were never part of it at all. They were always outsiders. So it wasn't all bad. Then. There were there were at least four positive characteristics of the Protestant Reformation, and, and we're going to cover these quick. And there's probably a whole lot more. There's just four.
four that I think stick out um, pretty easily when you look at it. Number one, papal authority was rejected. And by papal, we're talking about the Pope. People started to actually reject the authority of the Pope. And that was not something you did from about 500 AD to 1500 AD, the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. You did not step outside the bounds of what the Pope said you could do, politically or religiously. A papal authority was rejected. Number two, a lot of the errors of the Catholic tradition were rejected. Everything that you were supposed to do as a Catholic, people started to reject those things. Uh, Protestant churches at least professed the, the, to follow the Bible alone as their sole authority. And I think a lot of them did, especially early on. Um, but, as we'll see, uh, there was also a lot of those Protestant denominations that did not let go of everything that they were trying to do, so they didn't follow the Bible alone as their sole authority. And they used that as their main driving force, they had other things that they followed as well. The third thing is that salvation through church work was rejected, at least in theory. Uh, Protestant churches professed to follow the you know, grace alone that the apostles taught. And, and, you know, they had errors that were mixed in with that, because they still, many of them actually still uh, had infant baptism, and still do today. Infant baptism, if you're baptizing infants, to me, that means you have no understanding of what the gospel really is. Because how can, you, how can a baby get saved? He doesn't even have any idea what he's doing. He doesn't even remember that it happened. And the only reason that he knows he was baptized in the church is because somebody told him. How is that individual faith? It's not. So that was one of the things. They said that, but it was really only in theory, because a lot of them still held to a lot of the Catholic tradition that really makes you wonder if they even understood what true salvation was. Fourth thing was throwing off the shackles of Rome that resulted in a great expansion of individual liberty. Uh, they didn't have liberty back then. Didn't, there was nothing they could do outside of what the Catholic Church told them was acceptable. And of course, you had the caste system. You had your nobles, and you had your clergy, and they were kind of at the top, and then you had your uh, your merchants and everything else, and then you had your peasants, and whatever class you were born into, you did not get out of that class. And that's just the way it was. But what happened is, as they started to throw off that Roman authority, people started to realize there's more to it than this. There's individual liberty, and we can act. So, uh, it wasn't all bad, that's four positive things about it, but there's unscriptural characteristics of the Protestant Reformation that came along as well. Uh, and the sad fact about the Reformation is that it was, it was only a partial Reformation from the apostasy, um, maybe what you could call the leaven of Catholicism. They got rid of some of it, but they didn't get rid of all of it. And so, leaven, a little leaven, leaven is a whole lump, right? Now that's exactly what's happening. If they had thrown everything off, and returned back to the true New Testament church, then the Protestant Reformation would have been absolutely what was necessary. And all the denominations that came out of that would have been the true church, would have been the true church. They, they were just protesting from within. They didn't want to get rid of the Catholic church, they just wanted to change it to match the Bible. So there's a lot of things that, that didn't. So there was a break with the apostate papacy and, and the desire for a pure church, but the Average uh, in the major Protestant denominations didn't entirely return to the, the apostle definition of what the New Testament church was. They didn't even attempt to do that. So, here are four things, four examples, if you will, of unbiblical things that were retained by most, if not all, of the denominations that were part of the Protestant Reformation. And one thing was the state church. Most of the Protestant Reformation, uh, Protestant groups, uh, that came out of the Reformation. 
reminds me of the, the Church of Scotland, which was the Presbyterian Church. It was a national church. If you were in Scotland and you were religious, you were Presbyterian, right? I mean, that just became the national, the national, uh, the national church. The Church of Germany was the Lutheran Church. It was part of the Protestant denomination. One of the Protestant denominations. If you were German, you were Lutheran, or you were basically excommunicated, essentially. Same thing with the Church of England, the Anglican Church, right? I mean, we saw that as part of our early American history. If you were not part of the Anglican Church, you were actually, you were kicked out. You were you were excommunicated. You weren't looked at in a good way. So that state church, there was not a return to the important New Testament pattern of the separation of church and state. I don't have time to get into this tonight. There's a difference between a separation of church and state and no Christianity within our state. Right? And that's what they're trying to do today. Well, the separation of church and state, you can't have a main Christianity. No, that's not, that's, that's, that's not the definition of separation of church and state. Right? You can be influenced by those things without, it, 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 it actually is, it, it's more of a separation of the state from the church right. than the church from the state, right. is how it was written. But that was one of them, that, that the unscriptural characteristics. The second one was the hierarchy. And, and as a rule, the Protestant churches kept some form of government by hierarchy. You had the Pope and the, and the archbishops and the cardinals and the priests and all that stuff, and a lot of those denominations kept that exact same thing. And you see that in the Lutheran Church, you see that in the Methodist Church, you see that in the Anglican Church. They have all of that stuff. A group of churches that's under one bigger church, and then those bigger churches are all under another church until you have one person that stops. And so the autonomy of the local church, as it's taught in the New Testament, was not practiced. Third thing was, would be the sacraments. So a form of sacramentalism, if you can call it that, was carried over from Catholicism into Protestantism. Protestant denominations rejected what they called the abominable Catholic mass, but many of them continue to maintain the idea that when you are taking communion, you are taking the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, transubstantiation, if you will. But that there was, there was some kind of efficacious power in the Lord's Supper and in baptism. Now, those are the ordinances of the local church. There's, no, there's nothing that gives you a, a, a specific power about those things, right? So, Protestant denominations like the Anglican Church, the Lutheran Church, they continue even to this day to teach that, that Christ is present spiritually in the elements of the Lord's Supper. He says, do it in remembrance of me. He's not saying that this is my body. You know, when you take that bread and you eat it, it literally becomes the body of Jesus Christ. This is the, the, the grape juice. It literally becomes the blood of Jesus Christ. You have to, you have to make it say that. It doesn't say that anyone's Bible, right? But why do they do that? It's because they never completely left the Catholic Church. And that's a Catholic tradition that's continued from the 1600s until today. According to the teachings of most of the Protestant groups, infant baptism is an occasion and a means by which the child receives the Holy Spirit, becomes a member of whatever church that is that he's being baptized into, right? Um, this comes from the um, Lutheran doctrine written by them in the New Analytical Bible. Being by nature sinners, infants as well as adults need to be baptized. Every child that is baptized is begotten anew of water and of the Spirit and is placed in covenant relations with God and is made a child of God and an heir of the heavenly kingdom. That's not Catholic, that's Lutheran church. But it's plain that they believe in instant baptism for salvation as you could possibly be. That's that's Catholic, and it tends to be because they came from the Catholic Church and they kept a lot of those traditions. So that's that's the third 
on scriptural characteristics of the Protestant Reformation. And then the fourth one, we're going to spend a couple minutes on this, is persecution. Several of the Protestant denominations have been guilty of persecuting the New Testament Christians. And sadly, the true church that was always present got it from both sides. They got it from the Catholic Church who was trying to eradicate them, and they got it from the Protestant denominations who were also trying to eradicate them. So, let me read you a few quotes. This, this comes from um, Calvin. I mentioned him, Calvin's Bible handbook. Calvin consented to the death of Servetus. In Holland, Calvinists executed an Armenian. In Germany, Lutherans put to death a few Anabaptists. So, they were not above that. That's exactly what the Catholic Church was doing. We're going to read some things about that in a little bit. Catholic Church was persecuting Christians, and so did the Protestants. Here's another one. This comes from a book called Lion History of Christianity. Reformers had determined to use all necessary means to root out Anabaptism. Now, Anabaptism means rebaptized, basically. And the Anabaptists were the ancestors of the Baptists. We're going to talk about that in a little bit to give you an idea of what we're talking about. So, uh, they had determined to use all necessary means to root out Anabaptists. The Protestants and Catholics alike, the Anabaptists seemed to not only be dangerous heretics, it also seemed to threaten religious and social stability of Christian Europe. In the carnage of the next quarter of a century, thousands of Anabaptists were put to death by fire in the Catholic territories, by drowning, and the sword of the Protestant regime. So the, the persecution never stopped under the Protestants either. Of course, the Church of England bitterly persecuted the New Testament believers. You know the story of John Bunyan, right? A well-known book. Pilgrim's Progress in prison. He spent 12 years in prison. Why was he in prison? Preaching without a license. If you're in favor of throwing off the bonds of religious oppression, then why would the Protestants, the Anglican Church, imprison him for not taking the license from the Anglican Church to preach? Right? So not young money was the most was the most famous one there because he wrote the Pilgrim's Progress. They had 60 other preachers in jail at the same time that John Bunyan was in jail because they wouldn't take a license from the Anglican Church to preach the gospel. And so Puritans, Anabaptists, um, other different Baptists, and others fled to Europe into America because of the persecution was poured out of the state church of England. So the Anabaptists desired to practice this biblical separation to maintain. The apostolic word that brought on them that hatred from the Catholic Church and from the Protestant denominations. Now, this comes from uh, Lyon's history of Christianity as well. Unlike the other reformers, the Anabaptists were not committed to the notion that Christendom was Christian. From the beginning, they saw themselves as missionaries to people of lukewarm piety, only partly obedient to the gospel. The Anabaptists systematically divided Europe into sectors for evangelistic outreach. Set the missionaries out into them in twos and threes. We're not interested in simply reforming the church. They were committed to restoring it to the vigor and faithfulness of its earliest centuries. The Anabaptists came to elaborate upon the congregational or the independent autonomous view of church authority. So here you see this. This is this is that thread that we're starting to see throughout all of that time period. So the intention was good, I think, with the Protestant Reformation. There were a lot of good things that came out as a result of that. We would probably still be in the middle of the Dark Ages had it not been for the Protestant Reformation. So I'm not saying that it was all bad, but at the very least, it didn't go to me. 
Roman Catholic Church saw them as the enemy of true Christianity, which has to be a step in the right direction, at least for a, for a little step in the right direction. But with the Reformation came the loosening of the noose of the power that the Catholic Church had held for so long, and they were not willing to let it go that easily. So, then came the Roman counter-reformation. This counter-reformation was the Catholic response to oppose the Protestant Reformation and the Reformed Catholic Church. The Catholic Church knew they had to do something because all of these people have, you know, all of these reformers have gotten so many people in an uproar, if you will, about what had happened within the Catholic Church. And they were exposing the, uh, at the very least, Hypocrisy of the clergy of the Catholic Church, but but even further than that, they were exposing a lot of crimes and and, and uh, corruption and worldliness that, that was just everywhere in the clergy of the Catholic Church. And so um, I don't know if you could say officially when the Counter Reformation started, but in 1534 the Council of Trent was held, and then that kind of kickstarted this whole Counter Reformation, and that extended to 1534. That extended all the way to the very end of the 1600s, this counter-reformation. So almost 200 years of the Catholic Church doing everything it can to squeeze on for, for dear life to everything that they had left. And so the Council of Trent actually made sweeping reforms, laid down uh, Catholic dogma that clarified exactly what Catholics believed, because honestly, they could say anything they wanted to. People didn't have any idea what the Bible said. I mean, you go to different regions and different Catholics will say different things and different bishops were leading in different directions. And so this Council of Trent said, all right, we need to have something to establish what we believe once and for all. We need to address these issues, these issues that the Protestant Reformation is bringing up. And we need to, we need to establish all of this stuff in, in one place. And so the duration of the Counter Reformation served as a time really where Catholic doctrines were set in stone and became just exactly what it is today. That happened in the 15 and 1600s, and so Catholicism has not changed much in those 15. I mean, in those in those three, four, five hundred years since the 1500s. But we don't have near enough time to describe the brutality that was initiated by the Counter Reformation. But we're going to try, and that's exactly what the Counter Reformation was. Now, there's a lot of offshoots of the Catholic Church. One that I mentioned was the, was the Greek Orthodox. And they kind of almost got started at the same time. The Greek Orthodox Church. We're not going to take time to go through that. Well, one that you've probably heard of is the Jesuits. Now, uh, if you follow golf at all, Jordan Spieth is a Jesuit. If you follow politics at all, Anthony Fauci is a Jesuit. That tells you anything about what you need to know about the Jesuits, right? Um, but the Jesuits were are, they're members of what's known as the Society of Jesus. It was a, it was a Roman Catholic order uh, that included priests and, and brothers Basically, there were men in um, uh, religious orders who, who aren't necessarily priests. So they don't, you know, they're not these ones that have a celibate lifestyle and live in the monasteries and things like that. They they are a particular order of Catholics, but they're free to basically go pursue education. But many of them are actually in fairly high positions, and you know, they're 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 lawyers and doctors and astronomers and scientists and all of that kind of stuff. You don't have to be one of those things to be a Jesuit, but that's what most of them are. So the Society of Jesus was created in 1540 by a Spanish nobleman called Ignatius of Loyola. And maybe you recognize that, right? Loyola University. And he was the one that founded that way, way back. 
but the formation of the Society of Jesus for the Jesuits was part of the Roman Catholic Church's response to the Protestant Reformation. So the main thing that this Jesuit order was created for was to educate people around the world about Catholicism, to eradicate anybody that believed in what the Protestants were teaching, and then to convert people to Catholicism. Now, get this. Rome's answer to the Lutheran secession was the Inquisition under the leadership of the Jesuits in the order founded by Ignatius Loyola, a Spaniard, on the principle of absolute and unconditional obedience to the Pope. The object of the Inquisition and the Jesuits was the recovery of territory lost to Protestants and Mohammedans and the conquest of the entire heathen world for the Roman Catholic Church. Their supreme aim was the destruction of heresy, that is, any thinking different from what the Pope said. In France, they were responsible for St. Bartholomew's massacre, in which 70,000 separatist Christians were slaughtered in one night. In Spain, Netherlands, Germany, Bohemia, Austria, Poland, and other countries, they led in a massacre of untold multitudes. By these methods, they stopped the Reformation in Southern Europe and virtually saved the papacy from ruin. So these Jesuits, and I, you know, I kind of when looked at saw that they had like a like, Catholic, you know, background or whatever else, but I kind of thought that they were maybe a little bit, uh, maybe less militant version of Catholicism. The exact opposite is true, as I got into study. And what's that? There was a Gestapo. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly how you should look at it. It's exactly what they were. So there are hundreds of examples that we can look at. So let me read you just a few examples of the horrors of the Inquisition. The Huguenots earned piety and pure lives. Uh, sorry, the Huguenots' earnest piety and pure lives were in striking contrast to the scandalous lives of the Roman Lutherans. In 1557, Pope Pius urged their extermination. The king issued a decree for their massacre and ordered all loyal subjects to help and hunted them out. St. Bartholomew's massacre followed. Catherine de' Medici, mother of the king, an ardent Romanist and willing tool of the Pope, gave the order, and on the night of August 24, 1572, 70,000 Huguenots, including most of their leaders, were massacred. There was great rejoicing in Rome. The Pope and his college of partners went in solemn procession to the church of San Marco and ordered the Te Deum to be sung in thanksgiving. Pope struck a medal in commemoration of the massacre. So this is not something we're saying, well, we just pretend it didn't happen. They celebrated. They had a medal that they passed out to everybody that was involved in it and said, congratulations, you killed 70,000 of these Protestants. Bohemian brethren. By 1600, 80% of the population of 4 million were Protestants. When the half heard the Jesuits had done their work, only 800,000 were left. All Catholics. 4 million. Down to 800,000. Killed. Killed all. Or we're going to convert them back to Catholicism. Most of them were killed. Now, this is a story from, it's a book called The Anabaptist Story by William Easter. Under the persecuting zeal of Cardinal von Deiterstein, the brethren were robbed of all their savings and written out. Now, remember this the Anabaptists that we're talking about here are not part of the Protestant Reformation. Anabaptists were part of that thread. Came from the apostles. So, who we're talking about here in this story is us. They were robbed of all their savings and driven out of Arabia. Once again, deprived of houses and lands, cattle and household goods, they became wanderers on the face of the earth. Their history in subsequent centuries is filled with all the pathos of the people universally despised and persecuted. 
here and there on the fringe of European civilization, they saw brief respite from the relentless hounds of persecution. The hounds of persecution were not rest. To Hungary, the Transylvanian brethren had fled. Through the diabolical designs of the Jesuits, a century and a half later, these areas became an inferno of hate, intrigue, and torment, in which the Anabaptist movement was virtually consumed. After inhuman treatment incapable of description, those who were not killed turned Catholic. The Hutterite missionary effort was a costly enterprise. It is estimated that 80% of the missionaries died in martyrs' deaths. Anabaptist leader Hutter was captured with his pregnant wife in the latter part of November of 1535 in the home of Hans Steiner of Clausen. They were immediately taken to the Episcopal fortress of Brandfeld. Shortly thereafter, Hutter was removed to Innsbruck, where every conceivable attempt was made to secure a recantation. Neither the logic of Dr. Muller, the stabbing pain of the rack, nor the bruises of the brutal weapons to which he was subjected moved him to betray the faith. On February 25, 1536, some three months after his arrest, he was burned at the stake. The labors, the labors of Hans Hutt, another Anabaptist leader, came to an end with his death in a prison cell at Augsburg. Imprisoned and tortured over a period of almost four months, he died of asphyxiation from a fire of unknown origin which had been ignited in his wasted form. But even death itself could not keep him from man's judgment. The officials took the dead body to court on a chair, tied the chair to the executioner's cart, sentenced it to die, and burned it at the stake on December 7th. An eyewitness account of Pugmire's execution, another Anabaptist leader, was given by Stephen Struble. With his wife exhorting him to stay strong, he was taken to the place to get me, because this is this is what we have because of what they did. He was taken to the place of execution. Suffocating from the smoke, he died. Three days later, the execution of his wife by drowning in the Danube River followed. Another example of the awful persecution which the law including contemporary with our Roman leaders in the murder of Anabaptist leader, Sabbath. The sentence was read on May 18th. Two days later, on May 20th, Sabbath was executed. The torture, as previously to his, the execution began at the marketplace where a piece was cut from Sabbath's tongue. Pieces of flesh were torn from his body twice with red hot tongs. He was then forged to a cart. On the way to the scene of the execution, the tongs were applied five times again. In the marketplace and at the site of the execution, still unable to speak, the unshakable Satan prayed for his persecutors. After being bound to a ladder with ropes and pushed into the fire, he admonished the people, the judge, and the mayor to repent and be converted. As soon as the ropes on his wrists were burned, Satan raised the two forefingers of his hands, giving the promised signal to the brethren that a martyr's death was bearable. Three others were then executed. After every attempt to secure a recantation from Zephyr's faithful wife had failed, she was drowned eight days later in the Neck Harbor. Think about that. Think about what they were stopping. In 1529, a death decree was issued against the Anabaptists by the Second Diet of Spears. This greatly accelerated the program of extermination already in progress. 400 special police were hired to hunt down Anabaptists and execute them on the spot. The group grew too small and was increased to 1,000. Thousands of Anabaptists fell victims to one of the most widely spread persecutions of Christian history. Or 
running the stick and lowering the stake to mark the mark the track across the See what's happening here. You know why the church that was left was so small? We killed them all. Between 400,000 Anabaptists, and they, they were killed down to a thousand. I mean, think about, you know, you think about taking a group of hounds into the woods and hunting a deer, or hunting squirrels, or, or rabbits, or something like that. That's what they were doing to these Christians. On the down shooting them on the spot. Roman Catholic methods of torture were the same, and, and, and it made people that the Catholics were doing it to the Protestants and to the Baptists. The Protestants were doing it to the Baptists, so they, they had no chance of survival. That's why they got down to a thousand people. But, but, but listen to this. This is from a book called Babylon Mystery Religion from 1966. Many were those noble souls who rejected the false claims of the Pope, willingly accepted the Lord Jesus for salvation and truth. These were called heretics. Were bitterly persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church. Men pondered long in those days on how they could devise a method that would produce the most torture and pain. One of the most popular methods was the use of the rack, a long table on which the accused was tied by the hands and feet, back down, and stretched by rope and windlass. This process dislocated joints and caused great pain. Now, if you've never seen this, Tie their hands and their feet, um, not their hands on one end, their feet on the other end, and they just they they just wind the rope, and it just it just stretches the body, and dislocate joints. I mean, it ripped arms and legs off. They had no mercy. They didn't care. They were trying to get them to repent. And imagine how strong your faith must be to say, "I'm willing to take it," because I'm not recanting my faith. Heavy pinchers were used to tear out fingernails. Or applied red hot to sensitive parts of the body. Rollers with sharp knife blades and spikes were used over which the heretics were rolled back and forth. There was a thumb screw, an instrument made from disarticulating fingers, and Spanish boots which were used to crush the legs and feet. The iron virgin was a hollow instrument the size of and figure of a woman. Knives were arranged in such a way and under such pressure that the accused were lacerated in a deadly embrace. It was basically a box in the shape of a person. It had knives all throughout it, and it would just close the box and the person in. This torture device was sprayed with holy water and inscribed with the Latin words meaning glory be to glory be only to God. Victims, after being stripped of their clothing, had their arms tied behind their backs with a hard cord. Weights were attached to their feet. The action of a pulley suspended them in midair or dropped and raised them with a jerk, dislocating joints in the body. While such torture was being employed, priests holding up crosses would attempt to get the heretics to repent. Some who rejected the teachings of the Roman Church had molten lead poured into their eyes and mouths. Eyes were gouged out, and others were cruelly beaten with whips. Some were forced to jump from cliffs onto long spikes fixed below, where quivering from pain they slowly died. Others were choked to death with excrement. At night, the victims of the Inquisition were chained closely to the floor or wall, where they were a helpless prey to the rats and vermin that populated those bloody torture chambers. The religious intolerance that prompted the Inquisition caused wars which involved the entire city. In 1209, the city of Madeira was taken by men who had been promised by the Pope that if by engaging in the crusade against heretics, they would at death bypass purgatory and immediately enter heaven. 60,000, it's reported, in this city perished by the sword while blood flowed in the streets. Ella 
and 12, he led the governor was paying them to give it his wife thrown into a well and crushed with stones. 400 people in this town were burned alive. The crusaders attended high mass in the morning that proceeded to take other towns of the area. In the siege, it's estimated that 100,000 Albigenses, which were part of the true church, fell in one day. Their bodies were heaped together and burned. At the massacre of Marisol, 500 women were locked in a barn which was set on fire. Many left from windows they were received on the points of spears. Women were openly and pitifully violated. Children were murdered before their parents were powerless to protect them. Some people were hurled from cliffs or stripped of clothing and dragged through the streets. Similar methods were used in the Massacre of Orange in 1562. The Italian army was sent by Pope Pius IV to command to slay men, women, and children. The command was carried out with terrible cruelty and people being exposed to shame and torture of every description. An illustration from Redpath's history of the world is hanging by his teeth in scuffs. The fire is heating a pope to brand him and blind his eyes. Some of the popes that today are claimed as great by the Roman Church lived and thrived during those days. Why did they open the dungeon doors and punch the murderous fires that blackened the skies of Europe for centuries? The selling of indulgences or people worshiping statues and idols or popes living in immorality can be explained as abuses or excused. Because these things were done in contrary to the official laws of the church, what can be said about the Inquisition? Cannot be explained away as easily, for though sometimes torture was carried out beyond what was actually prescribed, the fact remains that the Inquisition was ordered by papal decree and confirmed by Pope after Pope. Man, what a description of what these people were. All in an attempt to keep the purity of the church. That they would not recant because they knew the Bible said. What the Pope was trying to get them to do, deny or deny. It's only a minuscule part of this because we all swore that we're going to leave the Roman Catholic Church upon the people who dare to question the authority of the Catholic Church and separate it from, from you know, separate from the Catholic Church and form the New Testament Church. The glory of God is the church throughout all of that, and that's where we come to the last of the true church. And I want to read a couple more things and we'll be done. But if you have to force somebody, which is exactly what the Catholic Church is doing, you don't have to force somebody to believe it. They don't believe it. But in fact, you can't force somebody to believe it. They try. They try. You can't force somebody to believe something. They might say it, yes, I believe it. But you can't force somebody to believe it. And that's why Christianity, true Christianity, would never work by force. You can't force somebody to accept Jesus Christ as a Savior, whether or not really accepting Christ as a Savior. You can't force somebody to repent of their sins when they're not really repenting. You can't force somebody to accept it by faith or it's not really accepting it by faith. Which is why the true church never took part in that, and which is why you can say that Protestantism is not part of the true church. They were forcing people to become Protestants. You don't have to force them to do it if they really believe. Now, the true church was called by many different names throughout throughout history since the time of the apostles, and they were usually chosen by their persecutors. So when it came to the Anabaptists, that means being baptized, and it was a way of, of basically uh, making fun of them, if you will. You already baptized once as a baby in the Catholic Church. Why do you need to get rebaptized? And so they the Anabaptists and the Waldensians because of Peter Walden and, and some of these other guys. And so they just kind of took the leader. Whoever the leader of that church, many times the pastor of that church happened to be, and that's what they named it. And in a lot of cases, there's, there's very, very few records 
uh, of their existence because it was such an underground existence that they didn't publish. This is who we are. This is where we were. And this is what was happening during that time. So this comes from Thomas Armitage, the history of the Baptist. During the Dark Ages, when from the union of church and state, Christianity became generally corrupt, there still remained an obscure place of churches and sects which maintained the pure doctrines in accordance with the Christ. Hence, it is certain that these churches and sects held substantially the same principles which are now held as the distinctive views of the Baptist. The Roman Catholic Church claims to be the oldest and the only apostolic church, but without a shadow of proof. The papal church is very old indeed, and so is Judaism, and so many of the heathen religions. Age alone cannot establish or claim to be recognized as the true church of Christ. It must be shown that in doctrine and practice, he is the same as the primitive church, but this cannot be done. The great perverted and corrupt form of Christianity was a mixture of Jewish ritualism and heathen rites, but also with sufficient gospel truth to give it some resemblance to a true religion. When the Church of Rome departed from the doctrines of the apostles, it ceased to be an apostolic church and became a political organization. The Baptists claim that their principles are older than the Church of Rome, and they base their claims to being the true Church of Christ not on their age nor an apostolic succession traced through the centuries, but mainly on the identity of their doctrines and practices and those of the apostolic church. Amen. That's why I reject landlord kingdom. Right. You don't have to be able to tra trace your church all the way back to the apostles. You just have to know that your church is doing exactly what the apostles taught in the New Testament to say that we are part of the true New Testament church. Amen. That's exactly what you have. There was always part of that true church throughout that entire time period. This comes from John Christian in History of the Baptist. Baptist churches have been have, have had the most slender ties of organization and a strong government is not according to their policy. They're like a vine to the river Gome, which sometimes flows as a river broad and deep, but at other times is hidden in the sand. It, however, never loses its continuity or existence. It's simply hidden for a period. Baptist churches may disappear and reappear as most unaccountable men. Persecuted everywhere by the sword and by fire, their principles would appear to be almost extinct, but in a most wondrous way, God would raise up some man. Or some company of martyrs to proclaim the truth. The footsteps of the Baptists of the ages can more easily be traced by blood than by baptism. It's a lineage of suffering rather than a succession of bishops, a martyrdom of principle rather than a dogmatic decree of council, a golden cord of love rather than an iron chain of succession, which, while attempting to rattle its link back to the apostles, has been of more service in chaining some protesting Baptists to the stake than in proclaiming the truth of the New Testament. It is nevertheless a right royal succession that in every age the Baptists have been advocates of liberty for all and have held that the gospel of the Son of God makes every man a free man in Christ Jesus. Man, I love the way that that's written. And that's exactly what it is. You have that succession. And there's so many others. I'm going to skip a few of these. I, I wish I had more time to read them, but a lot of these are actually going by name and, and giving the century. Uh, the Waldensians in the 12th and uh, the, the, the 10th and 11th century, the, the Petrobrusians and the Henricians in the 12th and 13th century, the Arnoldists in the 13th and 14th century. That's what I'm saying. They were not called Baptists all the way throughout that time period. They were called different things based on whoever was oppressing them and what they decided to call them. But it was the true church. And they truly faced persecution because they were the true church. And they were not willing to recant. Wish we had some time to read more things, but we see that, that, that though the true New Testament churches did not cease to exist in the centuries following the apostles, the Roman Catholic Church gradually, gradually assumed 
possibly the most power-hungry organization in the world. I don't even know if you can say possibly. I think they are the most power-hungry organization in the world. They control so much. But the Pope claims absolute authority over not only all Christians, but the entire world. Including civil governments, non-Christian religions. He claims authority over all of them. So whenever possible, the Pope has exercised that authority without mercy. Here's what is said by Halley in his book. However much Roman priests in our own country may cry tolerance, or being about America, the official infallible law of the system to which they belong is against it. Romanists are in favor of tolerance only in countries where they are in the minority. The papacy has fought religious freedom at every step. Wherever and whenever the Pope can rule, he will rule. And they've made that very clear. History proves that as well. But if Bible-believing Christians don't wake up and fight with everything that we have in our spiritual warfare uh, arsenal, if you will, that we find in Ephesians chapter 6 against this growing ecumenical monster, because what's happening is we're starting to see all of these other churches and all of these other Protestant denominations, because at the end of the day, they are Catholic. They're just diet Catholics, essentially. They're just a watered-down version of Catholicism are all starting to move back toward the Catholic Church. And that's what this ecumenical idea is, and that's why it's so important that we fight against this ecumenism. That's why when we have all these non-denominational churches that are out there saying, we're just preaching Jesus. That's what the Catholic Church says too. And all it's doing is setting this up for a one-world religion to come back underneath that Pope that they were all under for so long, threw it off for a short time, because they never really left the Catholic Church, only change a few doctrines here and there, change their names here and there, they're all going to come back and meet that. And when we as Christians in independent Baptist churches and in churches that claim to be completely separate from Catholicism start to come together, which is why it's so dangerous for guys like, like Billy Graham, who is willing to get up on these stages and preach with these Catholics and everything else. That's what ecumenism is. Right. In an attempt to bring everybody together, let's just have unity around the Word of God, let's just have unity in Jesus Christ. All you're doing is bringing the entire religion of the world under one system of religion and under one Pope. I don't know if the Pope is going to be the Antichrist or not, but it's certainly going to be somebody just like him. Right. Now, the Bible doesn't promise that we're going to be taken out of the world without experiencing the beginnings of bondage to the world church. We're guaranteed that we're going to be saved from the wrath to come. God's wrath. Not the wrath of the Catholic Church. Not the wrath of all these other parts of the denominations who are upset that we're proclaiming the truth and we're making them look bad and we're not unifying with them and everything else. We're not going to see the culmination of that. Doesn't mean we can't see the beginnings of that body. We're not going to see the revelation of the Antichrist. We can very well see the days when the entire church begins to enjoy. Except in the consolidation of global power. Right. And when they start to see that success, we're going to start to be persecuted. We're going to have a pocket of 400,000 or 4 million Christians. You're going to be left with 100,000 of them or less. You know? Because you know what's going to happen? And, and, I, and, and we're done. We're done. But what's going to happen is when the Catholic Church starts to really down and really start to persecute people who claim to be Christians, there's not going to be any Christians left. Not because they're persecuted, but because they're saying, well, I don't know, I'm not a Christian. 
the same thing you're preaching. Right? Because they don't even have any idea. The Catholic Church is preaching baptism for salvation, and that's exactly what these non-denominational churches are preaching to. You believe Jesus? Yes. All right, go get baptized. Now you're saved, you're a Christian. That's what the Catholic Church is preaching, with a few other things thrown into it, right? And so, I mean, what, what's going to happen is, is it becomes pretty apparent pretty quickly who the real Christians are. When you stick out as a real Christian, and you won't recant what you believe, you won't bow to the Roman Catholic Church, you're going to be persecuted. And I don't know if it's going to be in our lifetime, but I certainly think it could be. It's not ours, definitely in our kids like that. Because it's coming. It's coming. And it's ecumenism that is trying to bring everybody together under unification. It's just unifying everybody under a one world Roman Catholic government. Roman Catholic religion. That's going to that's gonna be the end of true Christians. If we're going to get persecuted like we've never seen before. In fact, missionaries and, and Christians all over the world are already experiencing yeah. that. Do you know that, according to statistics, and I, I can't prove this, if you've read Fox and Book of Martyrs, or at least you've maybe heard of it and, and read some stories out of it, you've heard about all these stories that we've read and, and how many thousands and hundreds of thousands of people are, are killed. Do you know that there's more Christians across the world today that are being killed? And at any time in history. Think about that. We don't see it. Because it doesn't happen here. But it's going to. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Exactly what it is. And if you keep, if you keep that, you can keep us in the dark. Look, Satan, prince of the power of the air. What do you think that means? Control the airways and everything else. That's our media, right? So, we can get off on a lot of different tangents and a lot of different sidelines with all of that stuff. But what I want you to understand and what I want you to see is the Roman Catholic Church hates, hates true Christianity. The Protestant denominations are not true Christians. They're Catholics who have separated from the Catholic Church in small ways for the most part. And the farther they've gotten away from that Protestant Reformation, the closer they've gotten back to the Roman Catholic Church. You go to a, a service in a, in a Lutheran church. It looks very similar to Catholicism. You go to, you go to a, a service in an Anglican church, and you can't tell any difference between that and Catholicism. Right? And that's exactly what we're seeing happen, and, and that's why we were never part of the Protestant Reformation. So, we're not Protestant. Don't call us Protestant denomination. We're not Protestant. We're Baptist. We can trace our history all the way back to the Apostles. And the Apostolic New Testament Church, which is the true church that was established by Jesus Christ. Yeah. And I'm proud of that heritage. Mm -hmm. You know what? So many churches out there taking the name Baptist off their signs and they don't want to be labeled or whatever. I'm proud to be a Baptist. Mm -hmm. And I'm proud of what those men and women and children suffered to be able to hold to the true doctrines that Baptists hold to. Yeah. And I'm not going to just drop it because I'm afraid of what somebody's going to think about how we're labeled. And, and, and erase everything that they gave their lives for us to have. Yeah. And that ought to make us want to go out and give the gospel to the world. They gave their lives so that we can do and we can have exactly what we have today. Could you imagine what they were given to be able to take the Bible out in the open? To be able to have a church service and preach the gospel? To be able to go out and knock on doors?
If you have a fanatic, there's one thing we're going to give them for that. We have No. No. I love the word of God and I love the Roman Catholic girl in the 60s. And she asked me one day, we're going back to what she said. I mean, what do you think is more important, the mass or the Bible? I said, the Bible. Well, I mean, she was a South of 10. I was South of 10. And she turned me. I thought she was a Catholic. And I said, surely. The Bible is the word of God, and that was another chance for that. Okay. And I mean, she was really upset, but you know, I witnessed her, witnessed her, witnessed her. But finally, she, she was uh, cast out of the Catholic Church because she married a divorce. But uh, mm-hmm. I had such a privilege witnessing her. Yeah. And I love the scripture that says, um, Husband of the wife was faithful to her and gave himself for it. He gave Absolutely. himself. For these three churches. Right. And I Absolutely. was a member of that church for 78 years, and I pray to God every day for it. Yep. And I just want to share Y'all being such a privilege to me, and I love you. And I was a of that church, the true church, the body of Christ. Amen. 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 Well, let's go ahead and stand. We'll close the word of prayer. And, uh, Father, we love you. Give it thank you so much for our good work. Thank you for our heritage. I thank you for what you've given us. Thank you. We've just been handed this on a silver platter. And all what the martyrs would have given to be able to have what we have now. I pray that you help us to never take that for granted. I pray that you help us to use that as much as we possibly can to get the message of the gospel out into this area. And as we talk about on Sunday, we would see our world change with all the Jesus. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.